Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory in Tucson, Arizona. And we also welcome you who are listening to us streaming on the World Wide Web at www.as.arizona.edu or listening to us on iTunes U at the University of Arizona page. Uh, before we get tonight's festivities underway, I have a few announcements. Uh, number one, I hope that you were able to pick up our latest flyer for the Steward Public Evening Series. We have three more Monday night talks for you, two in March and one in April. However, we have two very special events that I wanted to bring to your attention. During the U of A spring break, where we normally wouldn't have lectures, we do have one on Tuesday night, March the 18th. It's going to be Dr. Jill Tarter, who is the Bernard M. Oliver Chair at the SETI Institute. The last time Gil gave a talk in this room, I had to lock the door because we were packed. So we're doing it in Social Science Building 100, Room 100, it seats 500. So that way we won't run into that problem again. That will be on Tuesday evening at 7.30 in the Social Science Building, Room 100. If you're not familiar where that is, it's right next to Old Main in the center of campus. And also I'm pleased to announce that on April the 21st, we will host Sir Roger Penrose uh, from the United Kingdom, Emeritus Professor at University of Oxford. And he's here for a, a meeting on consciousness, but he's going to give us a talk on cosmology. And, um, but that talk is at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So those of you who are used to coming to see our lectures in the evening, you know, if you're able to make it, uh, I will give more details on our website and at our next Monday night talk about how you can handle parking at 4 o'clock in the afternoon here. Um, if there are any students that are here for an assignment, I'm the person who will validate your notes, and I will do that at the conclusion of the question and answer period. And finally, um, we were going to open up the Raymond D. White telescope for your viewing pleasure, but it looks pretty cloudy, and I don't think it's going to be any better by the end of the lecture. So uh, unless I otherwise tell you, the telescope won't be open this evening. Without further ado, then, I would like to introduce Professor Ed Olszewski to introduce this year's Aronson speaker. Okay, let me, let me tell you what is going to go on in the next few minutes. First, we'll start with Jamie Aronson saying hello to all of you. Then um, I will tell my Mark Aronson anecdote du jour, which is a lengthy one this year. And then I will tell you what a great astronomer Alice Shapley is, and then Jamie will come back up, or maybe Marianne will come back up and present the award, the plaque, and the check to, them, to her. So, um, Jamie. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm Mark's youngest daughter, Jamie. He has uh, elder daughter Laura who couldn't be here she's down in LA and my mom Marianne is in the audience as well and my mom had asked me if I could just do a quick thanks to everyone for joining and I came in from Barcelona last night from a work trip so I said no but then we went to dinner with Alice and it was so wonderful and I had to then accept the ask for my mom because most of the dinner my mom and I were arguing about existential questions and trying to force Alice to pick a side and, uh, and I thought my dad would have gotten a kick out of that constant arguing and that I should certainly tell you all about it um, because 
again, I just think it made for an enjoyable dinner. And I'm sure then Alice enjoyed when we switched topics and instead talked about the nice areas we visit in LA. <laughs> um, but it was great. So thank you all for coming. I really enjoyed dinner with Alice, and I can't wait to see her talk. So hopefully um, you all will enjoy it as well. OK, let me explain these three pictures. This picture is the one we've been showing for a very long time. And it turns out that none of us know where it was taken. But I think this is of the three. This is the picture of Mark at his eldest. And you'll notice that he has dark hair. Well, when I was his postdoc, I, I came to Stewart in 1984 as Mark's postdoc. When I was his postdoc, I also had dark hair. Um, I guess we could blame the white hair on Mark, since he's not here to defend himself. This picture. Mark was 35 or 36 years old. The person standing to his left is Jeremy Mould. And they had, this is the publicity photo, I guess, for the fact that they had both just won the Pierce Prize of the American Astronomical Society, which is otherwise known as the Young Hotshot Award. And the final picture, one of my friends who was a postdoc here until a couple of years ago sent. This is Mark as a graduate student to the left, Jay Frogel, another famous astronomer in the center, and Eric Person, another famous astronomer on the right, in front of the monastery, which is the dormitory at the Palomar 200-inch. OK, so the first thing I'm going to do is tell you my Mark anecdote, and that requires me to be Sir Laurence Olivier. I've, I've been waiting for years to be on the stage. And so I'm going to do a reading. And the reading is going to be from the book. Of the not ready for dark time players, otherwise known as the graduate students from 1983. And you can see what was on TV and what was in the movies at the time. Fiddler on the Dome, Return of the Jedi, and Gandhi. And Steve Grundy is an astronomer across the street at NYO. The Aura Board are the people who run the National Observatory. And Bonzo gets tenure. Bonzo is Mark Aronson. And I believe that at this thing, Mark was certainly in attendance. I think you were, too. Um, so when, when I start my reading, you know, it'll turn out that some of you might think that they're making kind of dirty fun of Mark. And it. The point, yeah, the, the motto of the Not Ready for Dark Time Players was, if you don't think we insulted you enough, send us um, an email. And from the faculty point of view, if you weren't mentioned in the play for good or ill, if you weren't mentioned in the play that he didn't like you. Now, it turns out that we have one of the scriptwriters for that in the audience today. John Hill, stand up and take a bow. Okay, so scene three. So I'm skipping around. I have to take my glasses off so I can read. The this is kind of a Star Warsy thing, Fiddler on the Roofy kind of thing, all mixed into one. The chroniclers told the story of the Aperture Wars fought between the stewards under King Henry the Bald, also known as Henry the Sweater Lover, and the Supreme Commander Peter Stratmatter the Great, also referred to by his peers as Peter the Many. The opposition was led by Geoffrey the Large. That's Jeff Burbage, who used to be in charge across the street. In this scene, the steward generals are meeting to plan strategy. So 
So now scene four. Enter the five generals in chairs talking, looking concerned. Titters, Peter Stripmatter, Cosmic Ray J, Ray Wyman, Rainbow Bill, Bill Tift, Aronson, Mark Aronson. When I lived in Canada, Mark used to call me all the time to make sure I was working hard. And it's amazing how many ways you can misspell Aronson. The, my favorite was Harrison. But anyway, Aronson and Compton, who is Roger Thompson. Okay, scene board two, intro to council meeting, date 1984 AD. This took place in 1983. Mark had just gotten tenure. He moved from being a postdoc at Stewart. He, did, he skipped the whole assistant professor stuff and went straight to tenured associate professor. Place, steward headquarters underground bunker. Titters, all right, let's go over that list again. Who can we count on when the firing starts? And of course, he's talking about bullets. Arison, jumping up frantically, fired. Who's getting fired? They can't fire me, I just got tenure. I don't care if I had 235 parking tickets, and that's true, for using the A-lot. My car's so little, it doesn't matter. Compton, and that's not the only thing that's little. Mark was short in stature and loud in voice. Okay, Arison, continuing obliviously. Everyone's always picking on me because of my size. Even my students, they keep asking me if this is the first course I've ever taught. They asked me once if I had a PhD. So, Wyman, we're not upset about your size, Arison. It's just appropriate that someone like you is working on dwarf galaxies. Arison. Peter, you told me they would treat me better when I got tenure, but everyone hates me. I want Jeremy, I want Jeremy. Remember, Jeremy was the other person in that second picture. Stomps angrily, if I were only a pundit. If I were a pundit, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. All day long, I'd biddy-biddy-bum. If I were a ten-pundit man, wouldn't have to observe, etc. And then I guess the, reply, the, the middle section says, I'd build a great square dome with mirrors by the dozen right in the bottom of a wash, a fine tin room with rotating floors below. There would be one computer just taking data and one for fudging the results, and one more doing nothing just for show. Then we skip to the end. Wyman, disgusted. Sit down, Arison. No one's getting fired. Besides, you're nowhere near the bottom of Peter Stripmatter's list, unlike someone else here. And everyone stands and looks significantly at Dodger Thompson, who shifts uneasily in his seat. Titters with a dirty look at Cosmic Ray J. All right, Ray J, let's get back to the issue at hand. Who are our allies? Compton, your Hessian friends at the Max Planck Institute for one. The Germans are excellent fighters. <laughs> so that's my Aronson anecdote this year. Now I'll embarrass Alex, Alice with what a great astronomer she is. And then we'll have one of the Ernson family come up and present her with the plaque. So let me just remind you about the Ernson Award. In order to create a fitting tribute to the memory of Mark Aronson, his family, friends, and colleagues have established and privately endowed the Mark Aronson Memorial Lectureship to promote and recognize excellence in astronomical research. The lectureship and cash prize are awarded every 18 months to an individual or group who by his or her passion for research and dedication to excellence has produced a body of work in observational astronomy which has resulted in a significant deepening of our understanding of the universe. Any living scientist is eligible for this award without consideration of race, sex, or nationality, although prime consideration is given to someone within 15 years of the doctorate. 
Mark was 10 years past his doctorate when he died at age 36. Okay, the Aronson Committee has commended Dr. Alice Shapley for her contributions to the study of how galaxies form in the early universe. Through her pioneering observations with large ground and space-based facilities, Alice has transformed our understanding of the stellar populations, chemical abundances, kinematics, and feedback processes of galaxies at high redshift. Alice got her PhD at Caltech. She became a Miller Fellow, which is one of the most prestigious fellowships for a postdoc at Berkeley. After her three years at a Miller Fellow, she became a professor at Princeton, where she rose to the rank of associate professor before moving back to UCLA as a full professor. So I'd like Alice to come up, and I'd like one of you guys to come up, and Marianne can read. You're the opposite of me. Okay, Marianne can read the award, which is one sentence long, and then present her with the check. So I'd just like to say thank you to Ed and to all the members of the committee who always choose uh, excellent, worthwhile lecturers for uh, this event. Um, Alice is certainly amongst them. We enjoyed dinner, as Jamie said. And um, my role on the committee is purely honorary, but every few years I say, isn't it time for a woman to be the lecturer? So, thank you. <laughs> uh, okay, so here we go. Aaron, Mark Aronson Memorial Lectureship awarded to Dr. Alice Shapley, Shapley uh, University of California, Los Angeles, February 28, 2014, for her contributions to the study of how galaxies form in the early universe. Okay, after that long-winded introduction, here's Alice. Okay, is this on? Yes. Okay, yes. wonderful. Okay. Um, well, um, I just want to say thank you so much for this um, this wonderful honor. I'm I'm really um, I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm just so grateful for um, for this honor. I really thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Um, and uh, so so tonight, um, what I want to talk about um, is how we're trying to decode the contents of distant galaxies in the early universe, and that's what we're looking at here. Okay, so we're looking at images taken with the Hubble Space Telescope of galaxies as they existed maybe about 3 billion years after the Big Bang, so about 10 to 11 billion years ago. So if you're like me, uh, an astronomer who thinks, worries and thinks about uh, how galaxies form and evolve, um, you know, one of the big questions uh, that keeps me up at night is how do the tiny density fluctuations that are there at the very beginning of the universe, um, how do they develop into the rich variety of galaxies of different sizes, luminosities, colors, and shapes that we see around us today in the local universe? So you can see what I mean. Here are some spiral galaxies. Our Milky Way is one such type of galaxy. And then we have elliptical galaxies, which are red and typically devoid of ongoing star formation. So we see this really vast variety of galaxy types. We want to understand how do they come into being, how do they evolve, and how do they end up like this. 
So, so how are we going to try to address this question, this really million-dollar question? So, well, um, we have a general framework for thinking about how galaxies form and evolve. Um, we refer to this as the cold dark matter framework. Um, um, and, you know, the idea here is that galaxy formation and evolution is a consequence of these initial density fluctuations in the early universe, okay, that evolve due to what we call gravitational instability, namely the denser parts of the universe get even denser, the less dense parts get even less dense. Um, and what we have here is a simulation of what the universe likes, looks like, okay, how all the matter in the universe evolves into the large-scale structure in the current day. <laughs> um, the idea here, actually, is that about 85% of all the matter in the universe is of an unknown variety. We refer to it as dark matter, okay, but it provides the skeleton for this structure in the universe. And then the evolution of this dark matter into this field of filaments and voids um, is really just set by gravity and then the, the overall parameters of the universe how much matter there is, and what were these density fluctuations like in the early universe. And so this overall framework, okay, that the universe is dominated by this unknown form of, of, of uh, matter called dark matter, okay, and that gravity can describe how it evolves, um, you know, this, this model, this framework predicts, you know, how this evolution, how the distribution of matter in the universe will evolve and, you know, what it should look like in the current day, you know, just, just basically due to understanding gravity. Well, there's a problem though, okay? So galaxies are not just made of dark matter. So um, even though this evolution of the dark matter distribution in the universe is fairly well understood, you know, because we know how gravity works, we have a pretty good idea of what the universe is made of, the cosmological model. The problem is that, you know, making realistic galaxies in this type of model is hard, okay? So what I'm showing you here, so this is a picture from a model of a galaxy forming. Okay, and this model doesn't just include that dark matter skeleton, it also includes gas, what we call baryons. Those are the atoms in the universe. Um, and so it includes baryons, it includes photons, it includes stars and, and black holes and um, the explosions of stars. Um, and what's shown here, so the, what's, what are the colors? So this is just showing gas, and the different colors are different temperatures of gas going from cooler gas to warmer gas. And this is a galaxy forming at the intersection of various filaments that are feeding it. Okay, and so you can see this is how the galaxy is forming. This is a galaxy forming about 10 billion years ago, so sort of at the same epoch as the pictures of galaxies that I showed you on the first slide. And this is a box taken from a simulation of a galaxy that's about 3 million years on a side. So the point is that these atoms and photons and the way they interact and the way that gas cools and heats up, capturing these processes complicates matters. Okay? So the question is, what can we do? We want to put together this picture of how galaxies form. Well, so let's turn to observations. What are some different ways that we can use observations to understand the formation of galaxies? Well, so this is a picture of a nearby elliptical galaxy, okay? Um, and this is a picture, this is a, a plot of a spectrum of the light from this galaxy, so separated into its different wavelengths, going from the blue part of the spectrum through the green and yellow part of the spectrum. And you can see that there are a lot of wiggles in this spectrum. There are some absorption features. There's a break here, okay? And the point here is that the spectrum of the galaxy represents the sum of the spectrum of all the stars in the galaxy, right? That's just what we're looking at, is the sum of all the stars that are in this galaxy. And so the key here is that in this galaxy, we're observing it today, the stars that are left in this galaxy 
actually preserve a fossil record of what happened in the past. And so some astronomers like to use the fossil record that's contained in spectra like this from elliptical galaxies to try to construct what happened in the past to this galaxy and how did it come to be the way it is today. So that's one way that we could try to construct what happened in the past. But what I'm going to focus on today um, is a different observational approach. So this is based on the fact that light travels at a finite speed. What this means is that distant objects, distant parts of the universe, are observed at earlier times. Right? The light has to take some time to get to us, so we see distant parts of the universe as they were. So telescopes are effectively time machines. For example, the Planck satellite actually looks at light that's been traveling to us since about 300,000 years since, uh, you know, after the Big Bang. Okay, so it's been traveling to us for more than 13 billion years. The Keck telescope, this is the facility that I use uh, the most, that collects uh, the spectra of distant galaxies, you know, at very, you know, a few billion years after the Big Bang. The Hubble Space Telescope takes exquisite pictures of such galaxies. And the Spitzer Space Telescope, when it was operating, took pictures of the longer wavelength light, which looks at the older stars and dust in such galaxies. And so the idea here is that we could also construct the timeline of galaxy formation directly by looking at observations of galaxies, distant galaxies, at earlier times. Just like this image here, which is taking pictures of galaxies as they were more than 10 billion years ago. So let's say we construct these observations of galaxies at earlier times. What are the questions, the more specific questions that we want to ask? You know, beyond the big question, you know, how did it happen, okay? What are the more specific questions that we want to answer when trying to assemble this picture of galaxy formation? So one of the things is, the question is, you know, what are the physical processes that drive the formation of stars in individual galaxies? So what I'm showing here in this figure, so this is a plot, okay? So Time starts, the Big Bang is over here, and time is moving forward to the left. And what I'm plotting here is the rate at which stars are forming in the universe per unit volume. What you can see is that as time goes forward, this rate rises. You can look at the top here. This is going forward in billions of years to the current day. So at early times, in the first couple billion years, this star formation rate rises. It reaches a peak. And then down to the current day, it falls by more than a factor of 10. So Right now, the universe is actually a pretty boring place compared to how it was about 10 billion years ago um, when this rate at which stars were forming was a lot higher. And so the thing is, we know the global form of how this rate of star formation evolves, but the question is, what are individual galaxies doing? So that's one important question. So another question is, how do galaxies grow? How is the matter assembled in galaxies? So we saw this picture from this model here, where basically the gas is streaming in accreting into the galaxy smoothly and fueling the formation of stars and the growth of the structure of the galaxy. Um, that's one way that a galaxy can grow. A galaxy can also grow by having a big collision with another galaxy. So the question is, how important are these collisions compared to just the smooth accretion of matter? So that's something else we want to understand. Okay, another thing is, how do galaxies exchange gas and heavy elements? By heavy elements, I mean everything in the periodic table besides hydrogen and helium, so things like oxygen and iron and magnesium. So how do galaxies exchange gas and heavy elements with the intergalactic medium? So the idea here is that a galaxy is not an island. A galaxy is not a closed box. 
from theory, we have a very good idea that galaxies are accreting material from the medium in between the galaxies, the intergalactic medium. And then we know very well from observations that galaxies like to spew out material, especially when there's active star formation going on in them. And this is a picture of M82. This is sort of the classic nearby example of this process of what we call feedback and outflows. This is the stellar disk of M82. And what you can see is that getting propelled perpendicular to the disk is some ionized hydrogen gas. Okay, and this is a very important process in the formation of galaxies because basically the amount of gas in a galaxy determines how many stars it can form. Okay, and then the last sort of like key question to mention is, uh, you know, what is the nature of the coevolution of black holes and the stars of the galaxies that host the black holes? So you may know that the majority of galaxies contain supermassive black holes at their centers. And what we see is that there's a strong connection between the properties of the black hole and the galaxy that hosts that black hole. So this is just showing the mass of the black hole compared to the mass of the bulge of the galaxy that contains that black hole. And you can see that these properties are very tightly correlated. Now, why there's such a strong connection between the size of the black hole and the size of the galaxy that hosts it, given that the black hole has a tiny sphere of influence compared to the size of the entire galaxy, is a big mystery that lots of astronomers are trying to address. Okay, because the black hole may have a, a very important effect on the evolution of the galaxy. So anyway, so these are some of the things that you, know, you should keep in mind as we think about this question of how do galaxies form and evolve. Now, in addressing them, so I'm sorry, I'm going to, I just have to do a little disclaimer. I'm going to express a very personal bias in this talk, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just going to present a strong viewpoint. You may disagree, but um, I'm going to put it out there, and maybe we can debate it later. So, I would argue that you know, astronomy is very well known for the exquisite images you know, that we like to show. There's the astronomy picture of the day, and it's absolutely wonderful. This is a picture of two merging galaxies called the mice. These are these tidal tails that look like mice tails due to the interaction of the galaxies. Um, so I would say that images are great, but what I want to get you excited about today is everything that you can learn by dispersing the light into its constituent wavelengths and looking at the spectra of objects. So what I would argue is that the spectrum of a galaxy, so this is when we separate out the light of the galaxy into all of its separate wavelengths and look at how much energy there is as a function of wavelength, it contains incredible information about the physical properties of the galaxies, the stars it contains, the gas it contains, the dust, the motions inside the galaxy. There's a whole wealth of information contained in this spectrum that you can't just get from a picture. So for example, if you had an image of a spiral galaxy, Okay, and you took its light and dispersed it using a spectrograph. So we have wavelength increasing from blue to red here. And what you can see is that there are some strong emission lines in the spectrum of the galaxy. And that these emission lines, as we'll talk about, are coming from the regions where stars are forming. So gas that has been excited by the massive stars that are forming in this galaxy. On the other hand, if you have a spectrum of an elliptical galaxy where the image looks like this, remember I already said that the spectrum of a galaxy of an elliptical galaxy is composed of the light of all the stars inside that elliptical galaxy adding up and combining to make this spectrum that has absorption lines in it. And that just is reflecting the mixture of stars in that elliptical galaxy. So what I want to sort of argue here is that you know, the measurement of these emission and absorption lines in the optical part of the spectrum, it forms the foundation of much of our understanding of the contents of nearby galaxies. 
you know, so if we want to understand, as, as I'll talk about, you know, there's some key things we want to learn about galaxies, and you may not realize it, but we're actually understanding them. We're making these inferences about the physics going on in these galaxies from their spectra. And so I wanted to actually go over this because, you know, it's kind of interesting. You know, what do astronomers actually do? How do we know the stuff that we know about galaxies? So, for example, what I'm showing you is a picture. This is a nearby galaxy called M33, okay? And if we zoom in, on, this is an example of a star-forming region where some very massive stars are forming. And so the emission from the stars both ionizes the atoms in the star-forming region, so strips the electrons off the atoms and also excites them. Okay? And there are some really interesting emission lines um, that can pr get produced by the gas in this star-forming region. And so the sort of very important set of emission lines that we consider come from hydrogen, the most abundant element, oxygen, nitrogen, and sulfur. And these provide a very powerful basis for understanding star formation in galaxies. Okay, so this is the image of the star forming region. What you need to think about is if you have a whole galaxy here, and you're thinking about the spectrum coming from the whole galaxy, if you can't resolve it into its individual pieces, what you're really getting is the aggregate of all of these star forming regions piling up you know, into your spectrograph. And this is what the spectrum looks like. Okay, so we have, again, we're in the optical part of the spectrum, and we have these strong emission lines from oxygen, hydrogen, these are also from oxygen, and then hydrogen, nitrogen, and sulfur. Okay, so I have my first quiz question. I think maybe the only quiz question. No, I think I have one more. I have one more. Um, so the question is, what's, what's one really basic thing that you could learn from a spectrum? For, we're gonna talk about the physics you can learn, but what's, if you looked at these emission lines, I know that there are some amateur astronomers in the audience, so what's a really basic thing that you could get from the spectrum? Okay, we're going to talk about chemistry, but I'm just talking about even before you even care about chemistry. What, what could you, what? That's even, more, that's even more difficult. I'm just talking about something really basic. Like if you measure the wavelengths of these emission lines. That's also hard. We're going to talk about that too, but I'm just talking about really stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The colors you could actually just get from taking pictures of the galaxies. So, so these actually, you guys, are much, you guys are much smarter than the answer that I was thinking about. Okay, so, oh yeah. Ta-da! Okay, okay, you, you, you get the prize. I wish I had like a candy, you know, I have a friend who teaches you kids candy bars. Anyway, okay. So, right. So, so the idea here is that, you know, you can use the Doppler shift to measure something called a redshift. So the vast majority of galaxies, I mean, basically all the galaxies in the universe except for a couple are what we call redshifted uh, relative to us, okay? So this is based on the Doppler shift. If you have a source that's moving towards you, the wavelengths uh, of light it emitted will be blue shifted towards shorter wavelengths than the wavelengths at which they were emitted. If the source is receding from you, the wavelengths of known transitions will be red shifted. They'll be shifted towards slightly longer wavelengths. Um, and since the vast majority of galaxies are receding from us, um, we see redshifts in their spectra, okay? And that's a very, it turns out that's a very fundamental thing to measure from galaxies is their redshifts. So, you guys already sort of stole some of the, the ideas, so we can actually go through it kind of quickly since I don't need to tell you about this. Um, but spectra can tell you a lot of stuff about galaxies. So for example, one of the things we want to know is what is the rate at which stars are being formed in these galaxies? You know, for example, these are the pillars of creation in the Eagle Nebula, okay? But if you don't have as exquisite a view of, you know, a star-forming region as we do for our own galaxy, you know, just in another galaxy, you can actually use the strength of these hydrogen emission lines here these are the, from the Bomber series, from the, into the second energy level of hydrogen, to tell you about the rate at which stars are being formed, because that's a direct probe of the massive star formation rate. 
Now, these hydrogen lines also tell you about how much dust there is in the regions in which stars are forming, okay? Because it turns out that basically you know how strong this line is relative to this line if there's no dust. And dust affects shorter wavelengths more than longer wavelengths. So you can actually use the ratios of these hydrogen lines to tell you about dust. It's a great code for determining dust extinction. Okay, so the other thing now, we already had this answer, so this is great. Um, so the idea here is that, you know, as stars, okay, so I think this didn't come out so well. I apologize, this doesn't look that great. But the idea here is, you know, stars form out of molecular clouds as they are on the main sequence. They are forging uh, heavy elements in their, um, you know, in their, in their cores and, and their interiors. When they explode, they return these heavy elements into the interstellar medium. And then the next generation of stars forms out of gas that's been enriched by the heavy elements from this earlier generation of stars. Okay, so this enrichment, the degree of enrichment of heavy elements in the interstellar medium is a very important gauge of the evolution of galaxies. Furthermore, it also tells you about the importance of this infall of gas and outflow of gas. So measuring the metal content, specifically the abundance of oxygen in galaxies, is very, it's a very important probe of their maturity. And so it turns out that we have many interesting probes for the chemical abundances in galaxies, okay? So we can use various patterns of oxygen, nitrogen, and hydrogen lines. So we have oxygen, hydrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, and nitrogen's hiding right there. And basically the pattern of this emission line, of these emission lines, is a code for the oxygen abundance in these star-forming regions, a very fundamental probe of the galaxies. Now, another thing it turns out that these spectra can tell us is the very density, the physical density in the regions in which stars are forming. That's something that we want to know because it should affect the way that stars form. Turns out that this emission line from oxygen and this one from sulfur, these are actually pairs of emission lines, they can tell us about the physical density in the regions in which stars are forming. And this is kind of related to the question of redshift turns out that if you actually look at these emission lines, so if you look closely at the emission lines and you measure how wide they are, that tells you about how fast things are moving around in the galaxy, okay? So I have a, a diagram here. This is actually using a star as an example, but it kind of gets the same picture across. So the idea here is if we think about the Doppler shift, you know, with things approaching you, the wavelengths are blue shifted, things receding from you, the wavelengths are red shifted, okay? So the idea is if you had a star that was rotating, the part that's coming towards you the light would be blue shifted. The part that's receding from you, the light would be red shifted. So if you made a little plot of a given emission line from that star, the blue shifted part would be moved towards shorter, shorter wavelength, long, uh, higher frequency. The red shifted part would be shifted towards um, longer wavelength, lower frequency. And the part that would be moving in a direction perpendicular to your line of sight, you wouldn't see a shift. And so if you added up the contributions from the different parts of the star, the part that was approaching you, the part that was receding from you, you would get an emission line that had a width like this. But let's say the star was rotating more rapidly. You could foresee that the approaching part would be more shifted and the receding part would be more shifted. And when you added up the contributions of the different parts of the star, you would get a broader emission line. And that's what you would, you could generalize that to galaxies. If a galaxy is kind of rotating around, right, or if things are moving around more rapidly inside the galaxy, you expect to see broader emission lines. If it's moving less rapidly, you expect to see narrower emission lines. This is yet another probe of galaxies, of their dynamical properties, their, their kinematic properties, how do they move, which it turns out is a really good probe of how massive the galaxies are, how much total stuff is there in the galaxies. So those are, those are the emission lines, but as I already mentioned, 
Um, if you have a spectrum of a galaxy where the emission lines are not that important because you don't have a lot of these gas clouds in which stars are forming, um, you just see the spectra of the stars, um, it turns out you can get a lot of information from them as well. So this is a figure that's showing the spectrum of a younger galaxy and an older galaxy. Okay, and what you can see is that the spectra of these are covering the same wavelength range from the near ultraviolet through the blue. And you can see that the older galaxy has stronger absorption lines. The younger galaxy has some emission lines from these star-forming regions. Um, but it turns out that the overall features, these absorption lines, how strong the break is in the spectrum, right around 4,000 angstroms, which is around 400 nanometers. Um, this tells you stuff about you know, the detailed history um, of the past star formation in the galaxy. It tells you about the metal content, okay? So these absorption lines tell you about the metal content in the galaxy. Um, and also the motions, because just like those emission line widths could tell you about the motions of star forming regions, the widths of the absorption lines tell you about the motions of stars within the galaxy. Okay, so I hope what I've convinced you is that you can learn a lot of really wonderful stuff from spectra about the physical properties of these galaxies how they're forming their stars, what kind of heavy elements they have in them, what are their dynamical properties, all this stuff that you can't just get from a picture. So let's think, how have we actually been using these spectra? Well, so in the local universe, we have a wonderful picture of what's going on. Okay, so there are these massive surveys like the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, SDSS, um, they give a very detailed description of the galaxy population today, which is the endpoint of our story. Okay, so there are spectra of more than a million galaxies in the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, and these galaxies have been used to make a map. Okay, so this is a map of, in certain slices of the sky, what the distribution is, you know, in the third dimension, in the distance dimension um, of the galaxies. And you can see there's that same large-scale structure that was uh, captured in the simulation that showed of the, the filaments and voids of dark matter. You can see it in the large-scale structure of galaxies. Um, but furthermore, um, sorry, move the arrow. Furthermore, um, you know, we've learned from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey what, you know, what is the distribution of all these fundamental properties, like their luminosity of, of galaxies, their luminosities, their colors, the masses of different parts of the galaxies, basically the stellar mass, how many stars are in the galaxy, what the dynamical masses, remember I said the motions tell you about the total mass of all the stuff in the galaxy, um, the black hole masses in galaxies. Uh, th these massive surveys have also told us about the structures of galaxies, you know, how concentrated they are, how much they look like spirals and ellipticals, the content of gas, the heavy element content, the metallicity, and also the environment, you know, which type of galaxies live in very dense environments like clusters and groups, which ones live in less dense environments like the field. Um, furthermore, it turns out that these properties of galaxies, you know, like their luminosities and their masses and their colors and their metal content, a lot of these properties are connected especially things like the colors of galaxies and their structures. Elliptical, spheroidal galaxies tend to be red, spiral galaxies tend to be bluer. And so these are some examples. This should look sort of familiar based on all those, the, the spectra that we spent a little time talking about. So the way the Sloan Digital Sky Survey works is that they put what we call fibers um, uh, to cover the center of, each, of the image of each galaxy, and then the light goes into the fiber and gets dispersed into the spectrum. And this is covering from the near UV up through the red part of the spectrum. I'm sorry, I don't know what this arrow is doing here, sorry. Um, so the thing is, so this is great. You know, a survey like Sloan tells us this is what the universe is today. But the problem is that we need more than just today and the endpoint. We need to have the whole story. In order to do that, you know, as I mentioned, we need to data from earlier epochs. We need to try to construct what's going on 
at earlier times. Um, and so, so in order to sort of motivate this, you know, I want to provide the really general context, you know, which is that, first of all, you know, our universe is expanding. You know, this is sort of most famously discovered by Edwin Hubble in the 1920s. Um, you know, furthermore, okay, so it appears that these external galaxies are receding from us. And also, the galaxies that are more distant from us are receding faster. And it turns out that, we, you know, with a very little uh, bit of math, you can show that this phenomenon of more distant galaxies receding from us faster is a natural consequence of a universe that is just expanding by a certain scale factor with time. Okay, so, so this, is, this is really interesting. We know that our universe is expanding. That's shown up here, so what I just mean is that everything's getting farther apart from everything as a function of time. Now, this expansion of the universe leads to the redshift. Remember, we were talking about the redshift, which we refer to as Z, of photons that are emitted by distant sources. Okay, so the idea here is that we have a distant source over here. It's emitting some light. Let's say we're set to receive it. We're over here somewhere. It's going to take some finite amount of time for this light to get to us. And in the time that it takes the light to get to us, the universe expands. And the thing is that the wavelength of light expands along with the universe, okay? So what that means is that distant sources of light, um, by the time the light gets to us, the wavelengths of the light from these distant sources will be redshifted by a factor of one plus the redshift, okay? So if something, if you measure just off from that spectrum, remember that's the easiest thing you can measure from a spectrum, it's just by how much the wavelengths are shifted. If you measure a certain redshift, you just add one to that shift, and then that tells you by the that tells you about the factor that the universe has expanded. Okay, so let's think about what this means for probing the early universe. So if you measure the spectra of a galaxy, you find that it has a large redshift, so it's a high redshift galaxy. Um, the expanding universe suggests that a high redshift means a large distance. Now remember what we were talking about with the finite speed of light, a large distance means that you're looking far back in time. Okay, so what that means you know, um, is that there's a direct translation between a redshift and how, how far back in time you're looking, okay? So what I'm arguing is that, you know, high redshift galaxies are a way of looking back in time. Okay, so how are we doing in terms of looking back in time by measuring galaxies with big redshifts? Well, there are several spectroscopic surveys that probe out to what we call redshift one. Okay, so that doesn't mean much, but I'll tell you what it, that means is about eight billion years ago. So a little more than halfway back in time, uh, back to the Big Bang. Um, so a little more than half the age of the universe. And there are a bunch of surveys, you know, for people who, who, who are interested. The names of these surveys are the Deep 2 survey. There's one called the VLT, the European Very Large Telescope, excuse me, v, VMOS Deep Survey, the Z Cosmos Survey, the Primus Survey. And these surveys are large. They're not as big as the Sloan Survey of the local universe, but they contain about 10,000 to 100,000 galaxies with spectra. And so what I'm showing here, I don't, have, I'm not, I don't have time to go into too many of the specific results from these projects, um, but what I'm just showing you here is, is histograms of the, so you can just see sort of like what, what are the redshifts that one of these surveys, the Deep 2 survey, um, is probing. And so remember, time is on the right. We're going forward in time to the current day. This is about 9 billion years ago, going forward to the current day, which is about, you know, well, the current day, which is about 13.7 billion years after the Big Bang. And you can see that what the redshifts are in the Deep 2 survey. So they're about redshift 1, that's about 8 billion years ago. And so these surveys that are going back in time to redshift 1 
Um, they demonstrate how the galaxy population is evolving over the last several billion years. They demonstrate that you know, galaxies are a bit different, but that the evolution is fairly smooth. You know, some of the galaxies are more luminous. Um, there's not quite as much stellar, there are not quite as many stars in the universe as there are today, maybe about half as many stars as there are in the universe today, but you know, at least half. Um, and, uh, but you know, galaxies are for individually forming stars at a higher rate. Remember, things are kind of calming down towards the present day. But we see similar overall patterns among the properties of galaxies even 8 billion years ago. So what I want to talk about today is really, you know, what I would consider the next frontier. And some astronomers like to refer to this as cosmic high noon, even though it's like further back in time than you know half the, the age of the universe. Um, but I think the idea is that this is the epoch when really the universe is very, very active. Okay, so I would, you know, this, it's my bias, of course, that at these earlier times, this is when the universe is most interesting. Um, but here's the reason for why, you know, I think it's most interesting. And, and just for context, what we're talking about is the epoch of redshift two to three. Okay, so what does that correspond to? That means we're talking about 10 to 11 billion years ago. Look, remember, that was when the rate at which stars are being formed in the universe was at its peak. And that's what's shown here. This is another plot. So time is moving forward. We're not quite at the back of the beginning of time, but almost. Time is moving forward from right to left. Remember, you can see that the vertical axis here is talking about the rate at which stars are being formed in the universe per unit volume. Okay, so today, very boring. But if you go back in time to this redshift two to three, you can see that the rate at which stars is being formed is very high. It's more than a factor of 10 higher. The other thing that's interesting, so we care a lot about how the black holes grow inside galaxies. And it turns out that this epoch of redshift two to three, which is about 10 to 11 billion years ago, also hosts the sort of peak level activity of black hole growth. Okay, that's what's shown here, is sort of the evolution of the rate at which black holes are growing. So that also reaches a very high level during this epoch of redshift two to three. So while there are some qualitative imprints of the local galaxy population at these early times, for example, you know, astronomers, when they look at the galaxy population, they do see you know, that it kind of divides into red and blue galaxies. You know, kind of today, like the universe divides into red elliptical galaxies and blue spiral galaxies. But there are also some big differences. For example, something like our Milky Way galaxy, so that's a spiral galaxy. It's a thin disk, right? It has a much bigger radius than it has thickness. It kind of looks, you know, like a pancake or a record on a turntable or something, okay? We don't see thin disk galaxies like our Milky Way at these early times. We do see some galaxies that are rotating, but they're very puffy and turbulent and clumpy, okay? So that's interesting that the galaxies haven't settled down yet. Um, we also see that, you know, in contrast to what we find in the local universe, the biggest galaxies in the universe are still growing, and they're still forming stars, and they're still active. They haven't all become into this uh, dead and quiescent state that we find elliptical galaxies in. They're the most massive galaxies in the current universe. We see that, as a whole, galaxies have much higher rates of star formation. We also see, if you recall that image of that galaxy M82 with the outflow coming out of it, we see that it's very common for galaxies at these early times to be sustaining these large-scale flows of gas from not just their centers, but from all over. And so it's really important for looking at these early times to for trying to understand the seeds of the patterns that we find uh, among today's galaxies, because there are really some important differences so we can really see how these patterns are being set. Um, because, you know, the galaxies are still forming at these early times. Okay, so, so now the thing is that, um, oh, sorry. The thing is that um, what we want to do um, 
Because you know, I was trying to motivate earlier why looking in the optical part of the spectrum in nearby galaxies tells us so much wonderful information. The rate at which stars are being formed, how dusty these galaxies are, what type of heavy elements they contain, how are they moving around, what, how do we measure you know, these fundamental properties of these galaxies. And I was trying to argue that looking in the optical parts of their spectra are the way that we can get at these really important properties. And so the thing is that we want to make these same measurements, but at this early time this redshift two to three epoch, 10 to 11 billion years ago. Um, so the thing is, in the local universe, redshift zero today, we use an optical telescope. This is sort of the traditional method of doing astronomy, using an optical telescope. But remember, you know, at redshift three, okay, if we want to make measurements of these emission lines that we were talking about, um, all the wavelengths are going to stretch by a factor of one plus the redshift. So all the wavelengths will stretch by a factor of three to four, and what happens is, this is no longer a problem for optical telescopes and instruments, but it's a problem for near-infrared telescopes, and near-infrared instruments. We can still use the same telescopes, but we need to use a near-infrared instrument, okay? So, so let's, uh, let's look at one of these spectra, okay? So we should see this is the same set of emission lines that we've been looking at for the last half hour. Um, but what we're looking at now, if you look at the horizontal axis here, you can now see the wavelengths in angstroms are like 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, 25,000. Up here, these correspond to the wavelengths that the photons had when they were emitted in these distant galaxies. Remember, they had to travel to us for 10 to 11 billion years, during which point the universe stretched and so did the wavelengths of the photons. And so what I'm showing here is near-infrared filters. This is the J-band filter. This is around 12,500 angstroms around 1250 nanometers. This is the H-band at uh, 16,500 angstroms, or 1650 nanometers, and the K-band at 21,500 angstroms, or, or 2150 um, nanometers. Okay, so these are the classic near-infrared filters. Um, and what you can see here is that these strong emission lines at redshift two fall within these filters, okay? So as I said, this is a problem for near-infrared spectroscopy. <coughs> Sorry. Um, okay. Well, so so you know, what have we known sort of so far? You know, traditionally, where tradition just goes back to the mid 1990s, um, about the spectra of these distant galaxies in the early universe. So, um, you know, the first instruments that were used to study these galaxies were optical spectrographs, optical imagers, and spectrographs on on big telescopes. And so the thing is that if you use an optical telescope studying one of these distant galaxies, what you probe is ultraviolet photons that were emitted by the galaxy 10 billion years ago. Because in the time it's taken for those light photons to get to you, the universe has stretched and put those photons into the optical range. Um, and so, you know, so this is, uh, we're probing the rest frame ultraviolet, you know, so if we have 500 nanometers smack in the middle of the optical part of the spectrum, we're probing something more like 150 nanometers, which is the ultraviolet in the rest frame of this galaxy. And this is what I'm showing here on the left. Okay, so this is actually, this is an early spectrum collected from a galaxy at what we call Redshift 3. It's one of the first galaxies that was, dis that was discovered in these early epochs. And so these are observed wavelengths between 4,000 and 7,000 angstrom. So this is the optical part of the spectrum. And um, this is a galaxy at what we call Redshift 2.96. And you can see some strong emission lines and some strong absorption lines and this continuum light here. And what we're really seeing is light from the most massive stars in the galaxy and the cool interstellar medium, okay? It's the 
cool gas in the galaxy that's probed by these absorption lines and this emission line. Okay? We're not probing the meat of the galaxy. We're just probing the most massive stars, you know, which are the tail of the stellar uh, initial mass function, and we're probing this outflowing interstellar medium. And so this is, this is a great, you know, actually this is what I studied at first um, when I was, and actually I'm still very interested in studying. Um, but it tells you sort of a different dimension of the galaxy um, and different stuff from what I was talking about um, earlier. So the thing is that, you know, if you want to learn about the star-forming regions and the bulk of the stellar mass and the dynamical motions in the galaxy, you need to turn to the near-infrared. And one sort of aside that's sort of ironic is that, you know, because basically, you know, optical telescopes are sort of the, um, the uh, and optical spectrographs, optical instruments are sort of what's uh, most, I don't know, traditional for astronomers to use. Ironically, we know more about this rest frame ultraviolet region of the spectrum for these distant galaxies that are coming to us from 10 billion years ago than we do for local galaxies because we need to use special UV telescopes to study the local galaxies in this part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Okay, so, so the thing is that um, once these high redshift galaxies were discovered, and this was in about 1995 to 1996, um, the idea was then, well, why don't we try to measure these optical lines, these rest frame optical lines that got shifted into the near-infrared. And so, you know, a little bit of history is that the first near-infrared spectra of redshift three galaxies, okay, so this is uh, actually redshift two to three galaxies, so these were obtained in 1998 using the UK Infrared Telescope. Um, and that's actually a four-meter telescope. And this was a paper uh, by some of my collaborators. Actually, this was right when I was starting graduate school, so I actually wasn't involved in this project. This was right when I was getting started. I didn't really know what was going on. Um, but um, a very small sample, like five galaxies were studied, okay, using this long-slit spectrograph, using one galaxy at a time. And so what are we looking at here? Well, it's actually pretty incredible if you think about what we're looking at. So we're looking at, these are wavelengths given in microns, Okay, so, so it's, we're right around 20,000 angstroms or 2,000 nanometers or two microns here. So this is the K-band part of the, the, the spectrum, that K-band filter. This is right around the same part. And this emission line here, okay, this is from ionized oxygen that was emitted about 11 billion years ago, traveling to us for 11 billion years. Okay, that's what this emission line is from. And this one is also from the this oxygen gas, and this is from hydrogen gas. Okay. Uh, but these are from these very, very distant galaxies, and this is the first detections of these lines in star-forming galaxies in the early universe. But the thing is, you can see these spectra look kind of ratty, okay? So this is really hard to do with just a four-meter telescope, and it's really a problem for eight to 10-meter glass telescopes. And so um, we obtained, when I was in grad school and a postdoc and beyond, um, we used this instrument um, called NERSPEC, on the Keck 2 telescope in Hawaii. Okay, this is a picture of NERSPEC. Um, we used it to study these same type of emission lines in these distant galaxies. Um, but it wasn't the, you know, NERSPEC was great, but it's not the only spectrograph that was used to make these measurements. So um, there's, you know, NERSPEC on Keck in Hawaii. There's this, there are a couple of instruments uh, like Isaac um, on the European Very Large Telescope. Um, there's an instrument called GNERS on the Gemini South Telescope. Um, there's Lucifer on the LBT here in Arizona. Um, and the thing is, you know, the, the, we use these long slit spectrographs. So the idea is you put a slit on a galaxy, one, look one galaxy at a time, or maybe two if they happen to line up, or maybe three if you're really lucky. Um, we use these spectrographs to try to assemble the samples that we could over the next 15 years. 
Fortunately, they were pretty small samples because it was just tough going. And you know, these are very, very faint. Even with the biggest telescopes, it's hard to measure these emission lines. So it's very hard. Okay, so I want to talk about why exactly it's hard. Okay, um, and it's hard for <laughs> for a couple of reasons. Okay, so first of all. Um, this is a spectrum obtained with the NERSPEC spectrograph. What are we looking at? What's this a spectrum of? You might be like, oh, that's a beautiful spectrum. What are you talking about? It's not that faint. It's the sky, okay? So that's our noise, okay? So we put the slit, we've centered the galaxy in the slit. The light goes into the spectrograph. This is the slit this way, it's the slit this way. This is the spatial direction. This is the wavelength direction. But unfortunately, this is not the spectrum of our galaxy. It's the spectrum of the sky. So we need to subtract off that sky, untilt the, untilt the spectrum, called rectify it, undistort it. Um, and you can see this is, this is what the galaxy spectrum looks like. This is actually one of the brighter galaxies that we looked at about 10 years ago. Okay, so let's zoom in on the features that we care about. Okay, so this is hydrogen, this is nitrogen. This is a great one. There was even some sulfur in it. Okay, um, but the point is that the the signal from the galaxies is really dwarfed by the signal from the sky, which is our noise. We don't want that, so we need to. It's you know, it's it's very tough to contend with. So that's sort of reason number one for why this is so hard. Now you know, and that comes from our our atmosphere. These these um, emission lines from from OH molecules. Now. The atmosphere is also causing more problems, okay? So that we have emission from the sky, but we also have absorption from the sky. So our atmosphere only transmits um, in certain wavelength ranges. So this is a plot of the transmission of the atmosphere as a function of wavelength, okay? Um, these are the bands that we know and love, the J band, the H band, and the K band, and they're tuned to, to regions of the atmosphere that actually transmit, okay? Um, and the thing is, you know, what this means is that there are only some redshift ranges that work for, for measuring these emission lines, okay? So both the noise, the background from the sky, and also the absorption from the atmosphere make this, this a very tough, uh, a tough proposition. But, you know, we tried, okay? We, we wanted to get these emission lines so badly that we kept forging on with instruments like the NERSPEC spectrograph on the Keck telescope. Um, but, you know, the samples that we assembled of these near-infrared spectra of these galaxies at redshifts two to three were very small. And typically only doing one band at a time, you know, basically getting a couple of emission lines in the K band or a couple in the H band or maybe one in the J band. Um, and that meant that, you know, they were sort of very limited in many respects. Um, and this, this shows an example. This is from work with my collaborators here. Um, and what we're looking at, I'm sorry that the axes are a little small. This is, again, this is K-band, okay? So if we think about K-band, that's this band here, okay? And basically we're looking at this line from hydrogen gas in the K-band, okay? And we have a sample. These are a bunch of galaxies here. We're in the K-band and we're looking at that H-alpha uh, sorry, this hydrogen emission line and the nitrogen emission line. This is, a, this is a wonderful spectrum that also has sulfur. But most of them just have this hydrogen emission line. And, you know, there are a number of groups that are working to try to make these measurements. But, you know, as I said, the samples are small and they're limited. And I'd say that, you know, it's difficult to discern um, a sort of big statistical picture of what the galaxy population is like at these early times in the way that is done for these surveys of the local universe. Okay, but that's really our goal. We want to say the same things about this early universe galaxy population as we can for today's galaxy population. Um, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some definite progress happening, though, in the last few years. So, for example, there's a new instrument on the Hubble Space Telescope called the Wide Field Camera 3 GRISM. 
Okay, and that is getting very low-resolution spectra of galaxies at these redshifts. Um, there are several thousand such spectra that have been um, obtained. But the problem is that these spectra are very what we call low-resolution. That means that the, some of the lines get blended together. Um, and so I would say that the spectra are great, but not really up to all the purposes of measuring and inferring all the physical properties that I was describing earlier in the talk. But what I want to sort of... Um, move towards uh, in, the, in the last part of my talk is why I'm so optimistic about right now for understanding the properties of galaxies. So there's a new instrument at the Keck Observatory called MOSFIRE. Okay, so this is the multi-object spectrometer for infrared exploration. This was built jointly at UCLA and Caltech. Um, and so this is an, uh, an uh, AutoCAD drawing of the light path of MOSFIRE coming in here, going here, and then going to the detector over here. Um, and so this is a near-infrared. By near-infrared, I mean um, 0.9 microns, which is, that's about 9,000 angstroms or 900 nanometers, up to 2.5 microns, which is 25,000 angstroms or 2,500 nanometers, so in the near-infrared. So um, it's a near-infrared spectrograph, okay? So in terms of what it covers on the sky, okay, so you can look at objects over a field of view of about six arc minutes by three arc minutes, just for reference. Remember, the diameter of the full moon is 30 arc minutes, okay, so this is about a fifth of the, the full moon by a tenth of the full moon, okay, so that's shown here, okay, so this is, this is an example of a field. Um, and you have to look at one near-infrared filter at a time, but one of the great things about this new instrument um, is that you can you know, in contrast to using what we call a long slit spectrograph, where you can look at one object at a time, or maybe two, or maybe if you're really lucky and you have three in a row, you can put them all on the slit at once and collect their spectra at once. With MOSFIRE, you can get up to 46 objects at once. Okay, so this shows what we call a slit mask, where these slits are cut into the, into what we, they're actually not cut. What this consists of is a, is a set of 46 pairs of bars that can combine to make separate slits which you can center, position on your galaxies and obtain spectra simultaneously, okay? Um, and uh, this is all cryogenic, um, so the, the slit unit is contained inside a, you know, refrigerating, refrigerated unit. Um, and, you know, this is an example of what happens when you put this mask on the sky and collect spectra. Okay, so again, you guys know, what are these spectra showing? It's the sky, okay? So, but, but I'll show you what the galaxy spectra look like in a second, okay? So now what was really exciting is that this instrument was commissioned in the spring of 2012 at the Keck telescope on the Keck 1 telescope. Um, and it's going to enable measurements of these distant galaxies from redshift 0.5, which is not that far out in redshift, but all the way out to a redshift of 5, okay? Which is, you know, about one and a half billion years after the Big Bang. And so MOSFIRE is wonderful for a couple of reasons. So first of all, it's just more sensitive than the previous instruments. Turns out that even if MOSFIRE just enabled you to look at one galaxy at a time, it would still be about five times better than the previous instruments. Just because, you know, in the time that's elapsed since the last set of instruments were built, detectors have gotten better, they're less noisy, and so you can obtain more sensitive observations. Um, and so, like, compared to this instrument NERSPEC that I got to know so well as a graduate student and a postdoc and an early faculty member. Um, so, you know, the other thing, okay, and, oh, and here, actually, this is what I'm showing here, is some data taken during the commissioning of this instrument a couple of years ago. And what you see, and we'll see this again in a second, um, is little blobs here of the positive detection of an emission line, and then this is the negative, because the way that we obtain the data 
is basically we, you take a spectrum of a galaxy, it's in one position, and then you move the telescope slightly, take a spectrum in another position, and then you basically subtract the second one from the first one, and then you subtract the first one from the second one, and you shift them and add them. But this is just showing actually subtracting the second position from the first one. Okay? And so basically, most of the skylines should roughly cancel out. It's not perfect. But what you're left with is the galaxy um, detected over here, and then this is the hole where you subtract it off the second image. Okay, so um, the, the real big thing here is that, okay, so it's more sensitive for individual objects, but also you can get all these you know, objects at once. So even though, in principle, you could do up to 46 objects at once, in practice, it turns out that you could do more like 30 to 35. You can't always fit 46 objects on a, on a mask at once. But what this means is that if you want to do a survey of galaxies in the early universe, your survey efficiency, so how big a sample you can assemble, is more than two orders of magnitude better than with the previous instruments. So more than a factor of 100 better than with the previous sets of instruments. And so this, you know, the commissioning of this instrument is really a watershed moment for surveys of the stellar and gaseous contents of distant galaxies. Okay. All right, so what I want to spend you know, the last little part of my talk about is telling you um, about what we're going to try to do with this wonderful instrument. Okay, so um, you know there's some I'd say some key requirements for trying to make these um, crucial measurements of galaxies in the early universe. Um, so if one were to design a survey of the early universe to try to you know place these data points on that timeline of galaxy formation. Um, what would you do? Okay, so I'd say number one, you know, the idea would be to get these rest frame optical spectra. So, you know, when you're looking at galaxies in the local universe, you just say optical spectra. Okay, but when you're talking about galaxies in the, in the distant universe, I say rest frame optical because that's the wavelength that the photons had when they were emitted. But by the time they get to us, of course, they're near infrared photons. But we want to get rest frame optical spectroscopy covering all of those strong features. Um, uh, uh, you know, both the emission lines and the absorption lines um, from these galaxies. Um, the other thing we want is a large sample of objects, at least a thousand objects, spanning the full diversity of galaxy types, the red galaxies, the blue galaxies, all different types of galaxies, not just one kind. The other thing, too, is that I keep talking about, you know, high redshift galaxies, but we actually want to look at galaxies at a few points in cosmic time so that we can construct some type of evolutionary sequence, even within this early universe time. And so our project, the MOSFIRE Deep Evolution Field, or MOSDEF survey, is going to achieve these goals. Okay, so, so you know, this is our project. Or these are our people. Okay, so these are my collaborators in this project. We're all in the University of California. So this is Allison Coyle at UC San Diego, Mariska Creek at uh, Berkeley, Baram Mobasher at Riverside, Naveen Reddy at Riverside, you know who this is, and then this is Brian Sayana um, also at Riverside. And I, I'm sorry, I said this yesterday when I talked about it, I just think it's so funny that everyone looks so different um, in their pictures. Um, you know, so Mariska, I think this is part of some photo shoot or something, because she looks very glamorous. And then a couple of my collaborators look like they're posing for their ID photos, you know, like Brian and Allison. Um, and then Naveen and Baram look like they're standing in front of the same tree in Riverside, so. Um, <laughs> Um, but anyway, so this is a project that's mainly composed of uh, uh, observers, people who like to use telescopes within the UC system, and also a bunch of theoretical, um, theoretical astronomers who are theorists so that we can really talk about what our observations mean. And also we have some graduate students too who are wonderful. Um, okay, so I want to show you what some of our beautiful spectra look like. Okay, so what we're looking at here is we're going, we're increasing in wavelength from left to right. And this dimension is the spatial dimension um, along the slit. 
Um, and so what we see here in each one of these spectra are some little white blobs. Um, and you can see surrounded by each one are the black um, subtraction from the adjacent images. So like these the little white blobs are the emission lines. Okay. Um, and this is the J band, this is the H band, this is the K band. So these are examples of spectra from redshift two galaxies. Um, we're looking at emission from oxygen in the J band. This is hydrogen, more oxygen, hydrogen and nitrogen, and in some cases we also see emission from sulfur. Um, you can see even from just looking at these blobs that there's a range of ratios of strengths of the lines. Um, there's a range of widths. There's a range of morphologies. Like for example, you can see this line is sort of tilted. These, this galaxy looks like it has some rotation. This looks like a merger. So we see a wonder, and this one has very broad lines. Um, you can then take these spectra. So these are the, this is what happens when you process your data in two dimensions. But what you want to do is actually make it into a spectrum by collapsing it into one dimensional stuff. And these might look a little noisy compared to this, but I want you to understand that we're looking at the same stuff in here as we are over here. Okay, so this emission line, that corresponds to this one over here. This is again, this is in the J band in the near infrared. These guys here, they correspond to these. And then these guys over here, they correspond to these. So especially these two, and then maybe you can see in a couple of cases, this one, which is like this over here. Um, and so I guess the thing that I want you to really focus on um, is that this may look a little noisy, but remember, these emission lines are coming to us from about 10 billion years, okay? They've been traveling to us for 10 billion years, about 10 billion light years away. Um, and so we're doing this survey on the Keck-1 telescope here, okay? So this is a Keck these are the pair of Keck telescopes on the summit of Mauna Kea. Um, we've been approved for a large program from the University of California. Uh, we have 47 nights using this instrument over the next few years, so we're really thrilled about that. And what we're doing is we're obtaining spectra of these distant galaxies in fields of the sky that a lot of other astronomers have looked at. So the extragalactic community has kind of coordinated, said there are a few patches of sky that we're gonna turn almost every telescope on and get wonderful multi-wavelength data, okay? So the fields that we're looking at are so-called legacy fields that have enormous existing data sets from the Hubble Space Telescope, the Chandra X-ray Telescope, the Spitzer Infrared Telescope, the Herschel Infrared Telescope, uh, the Galax Satellite, lots and lots of ground-based data. So it's wonderful because for each galaxy that we obtain a spectrum, um, we will also have all this other information to create a very multi-dimensional picture of the galaxy. And we're looking in a few different ranges of redshift. Uh, redshift ranges where we get these really nice emission lines and windows of atmospheric transmission. So we're looking from redshift 1.4 to 1.7. That's about nine, nine and a half billion years ago. 2.09 to 2.61, that's about 10, 10 and a half billion years ago. And then 2.95 to 3.8, that's about maybe 11 to 11 and a half billion years ago. We're gonna get, try to get 500 galaxies in this range, 1,000 galaxies in this redshift range because it's really sort of the sweet spot, um, and then another 500 galaxies in this highest redshift furthest away bin, okay? And so our survey is underway. We had some really bad weather last year, but we've already assembled 200 galaxies, um, and we have some early science in progress. So that's what I wanna sort of finish with. I wanna tell you about um, what it is that we're starting to do and just give you a teaser of one of the coolest results that I'm very excited about um, right now. So with our project, we're gonna address those key questions that I mentioned, okay? So we wanna understand star formation and the growth of galaxies. Remember, this is the star forming region, the pillars of creation. Um, we want to understand dust in galaxies. Oh, sorry, we want to understand dust in galaxies. It's very, very important 
to characterize the amount of dust in galaxies. Because if you actually want to know the intrinsic rate at which stars are being formed, you need to take out the attenuation of dust and sort of re remove that mask and then really understand how many massive stars are being made. Okay, so it's very important for us to measure this dust. Um, we're going to look at the evolution of heavy elements. Remember, we talked about the cycle in which the gas is enriched, but we can use these emission lines to look at how much oxygen there is in these galaxies. Um, we're going to look at the cycle of gas outflows in them. We can use the kinematics of these emission lines to learn about outflows. Um, we're going to look at the evolution of the structures of galaxies and how it's connected to their motions, because every single galaxy that we're going to obtain a spectrum for also has an image from the Hubble Space Telescope, so we can look at its detailed structure. And we're also going to look at the growth of black holes, because as I said, there's lots of other information in these fields. So we've looked, you know, X-ray telescopes have told us about which galaxies are hosting and creating black holes, and we're going to learn about those galaxies in a lot of detail. Okay, so, so the last thing I want to tell you about is something that, you know, I'm very excited about. It's particularly um, the aspect that I'm, I'm focusing on. So you'll have to forgive me. I'm going to show you a couple of, like, you know, real plots that have emission line ratios on them, but it's, this is, you know, this is the real stuff that, that, we're, what, that we're doing. Um, and so if you look at the regions in which stars form in the local universe, okay, so remember this is our image of a star-forming region in a nearby galaxy, okay? Um, you can look at the pattern of emission lines, remember that code for the physics going on in that star-forming region. And it turns out that various star-forming regions and galaxies um, have very definite patterns in their emission lines. So for example, if you look at the, oh, I'm sorry, this got cut off. If you look at the ratio of oxygen to hydrogen lines versus nitrogen to hydrogen lines, so this is sort of like a multi-dimensional picture of these star-forming regions, it turns out that star-forming galaxies span a very, very particular pattern in this space of these two observable quantities, this code of emission lines. So the star-forming galaxies span this sequence in this pair of ratios. And it turns out that when you look at uh, gas clouds that have been excited by an accreting black hole, they follow very different patterns. They're up here and down here. And back when we were laboring with these long flit spectrographs and assembling very small samples of galaxies, we tried to make the same measurements for the distant galaxies. And we found something very interesting based on samples of, you know, five or ten galaxies. Okay, so it's the same plot here. We're looking at oxygen to hydrogen versus nitrogen to hydrogen. And this is here, the local galaxies. And these points of different colors show the measurements we, we, we made for the distant galaxies. And hopefully what you can see is that the distant galaxies lie in a different part of the plot from the local galaxies. So it's telling us something about the physics in these distant star-forming regions, it's different from what we see in the local star-forming regions. But, you know, it was just a few galaxies, and I was pretty worried, oh my goodness, what if, what if this was just a fluke? You know, what are we going to do? But what's great is that so far, with our survey, we have a much larger sample, even in the early days of the project. You know, we just started this. So again, we have this ratio of oxygen to hydrogen versus nitrogen to hydrogen. These are the local galaxies, and these red points are our galaxies at Redshift 2 you know, 10 billion years ago. The light is coming to us from 10 billion years ago. And it turns out that this difference is actually real. The high redshift distant galaxies look different from the local galaxies. Okay, so this is just a, you know, this is a boring plot, okay, but let's think about what it actually means, okay, because that's what's really interesting. So if the, the patterns among these emission lines are different in high redshift galaxies, it suggests differences in the physical conditions in the places where stars are forming. 
For example, it may be that the gas out of which the stars are forming are being subjected to a stronger um, and higher energy radiation field. It could say something about the ge geometry of these star-forming regions. Um, it could say something also about the pressure in these star, the gas pressure in these star-forming regions, which may have an implication for the way in which gas clumps into stars. And so, you know, I think that this is a very important observation. It may tell us that star formation is actually different um, in these high redshift galaxies, and we really need to understand it if we're going to make our model for star formation as a function of every cosmic epoch. Okay, so I think this is a very, this may be very important. Okay, so I said this is just a little teaser. Okay, we're doing so much more. We're addressing all those other questions that I was talking about, but I just wanted to show you this as an example of the type of question that we're addressing. Okay, so that's really, you know, all that I wanted to say. So, so let me just leave you with some of my deep thoughts, okay? Um, so, I can go over here. Um, so, so um, hopefully what I've convinced you, you know, is that these rest frame optical spectra provide key information on the contents of galaxies. What type of stars they host, what type of gas they contain, how much oxygen and nitrogen and sulfur they contain, um, what type of dust they are hosting, um, and what are their dynamical properties? What are their motions? Um, it's true that we have huge samples of optical spectra for galaxies in the local universe, um, but that's not enough to tell the whole story of galaxy formation. So we need to do this also at earlier times. But we're doing it, okay? So we're starting to tell the same story for the early universe using these new near-infrared spectrographs. And so I think it's a really very exciting time for the study of the early universe through the spectra of distant galaxies. And I'll stop there, thanks. Okay, we'll take a few questions, and there are treats in the lobby after the questions. Um, so the way we want to do it so that you'll be immortalized on the podcast is when you raise your hand, I'll come running over with the microphone, and please speak into the microphone so that we can all hear you and so that you'll live forever. Questions? Um, I'd like to know if uh, you have done work also with higher Zs, because I'm assuming that um, the cosmic microwave background is like the equivalent of a Z equal to 1,000. And if, if so, if you go, let's say, in a range, work in a range from Z equals 5 to 10, um, if you've done work with that, and if so, what could you uh, explain about the evolution of galaxies, galaxy merger, exchange of gas, and formation of black holes in that epoch? Okay, so that's a great question. So, so I haven't, I'm, I'm, personally, I'm kind of like a wrench of three kind of girl. So, okay, so I haven't gone to those earlier times. But there is work being done with these near-infrared spectrographs um, or in the red part of the, the, the optical spectrum. Um, but the thing is that the main spectral feature that has been targeted and detected for such distant galaxies, so I'm going to go back to a different, um, different slide, um, is this one here, okay? So this, this is called, this is hydrogen Lyman alpha, so this is going from the second energy level to the ground state. And so at those high redshifts, you gotta think about, if you're talking about redshift five to 10, so that Lyman alpha line at redshift 10, you know, shifts to about, you know, 1300, sorry, 13,000 angstroms, so into the J band. And so the only such line, I think, that has been claimed to be detected for such high redshift galaxies is this Lyman alpha line, okay? So, so, um, 
this is a problem, you know, for, for the James Webb Space Telescope. I think people are going to try to, you know, make some of the measurements that I'm talking about um, using some of the, you know, going to longer wavelengths. But Lyman Alpha has been detected for a couple of galaxies um, at redshift 7. There have been a claim of a detection at redshift 8. But most of the galaxies that astronomers talk about in these redshift ranges, you know, up to 10, are what I would call, like, photometrically, uh, photometric candidates. There have only been a few that have been confirmed by spectroscopy. And it turns out that the detection of this emission line may be very difficult at those redshifts because what's happening is that the intergalactic medium is actually getting more neutral. And it may actually kill this line a bit. And so, so far, the astronomers, if you go out to redshift 6, it looks like this line is actually getting stronger in galaxies as they get bluer and more metal poorer. But then at redshift 7, this line starts to disappear, and it may be telling us something about the intergalactic medium and the epoch of reionization. Other questions? Thank you. Uh, Two-part question. First part is, what's the probability that two Shapleys would be working on galaxies in the past 100 years? And the second part is, there are uh, early generation stars being found that aren't so far away that are very low in metallics. What does, what does that information shed on your search for the, uh, the old galaxies? Sure, sure. Um, well, okay, so, so the first thing is it turns out that I'm not related to the other Shapley, so, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I get to ask that a lot. Um, so, so the second part is uh, about the low metallicity galaxies in the, in the, um, in the universe today. Um, and so the thing is, those tend to be these uh, very low mass systems. It turns out that typically galaxies with low metal contents are also less massive. Um, and I guess the question is, uh, um, I believe that the galaxies that we're, we're studying in the early universe, by now they're actually going to be a bit more metal rich. And they're going to be among the galaxies that look kind of like our Milky Way that has, you know, higher metal abundance than these little things that you're talking about. So if you want to think about mapping, which is, you know, th that's sort of like the million dollar question, is mapping the early galaxies into what they turn into today. I and mean, that's the challenge of uh, sort of um, connecting a population at early times to one now. So I think that the ones that I'm studying are all going to look more like the Milky Way and more massive galaxies. And so I'm not sure what the counterpart of these low metallicity galaxies are today. They may not have even been there. Other questions? Okay, well, before we thank Alice, let's, uh, Dr. Fleming just peeked outside to see if it's clear. No, it's not clear enough. So, so the telescope is closed. And if there are any students in the audience, he's the guy in the back that you need to get your project stamped. So let's thank Alice again. Thank you.